All right. You can go ahead and turn back to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to finish 1 John today. I was, I was joking about it earlier. This would have been a great like whole series wrap-up. I, I thought about this morning. It hit me. It was too late. I thought about saying I should have just gone ahead and done 2nd and 3rd John for the next two weeks and then come back to this because I think this kind of summarizes everything really well. But that's okay. This is the way, this is the way God wants it. So we're going to do, we're going to finish up this book today and then we'll just keep moving forward kind of in order uh, over the next couple of weeks. Um, so like I said, um, like we said a lot last week and like I was just praying, there is a whole lot that we as believers can be confident in. And we've been talking about this, looking back at how faithful Jesus has been, looking back at all the things that he's done to make us who we are, and, and, what, that, and what that should cause us to look like when we are the church. And so, as he's kind of wrapping up this first letter to the church, John is just going to kind of remind everybody one more time. Let me tell you why I wrote this book. I want you to make sure, more than anything else, that you understand my intentions behind why every word has been written the way it has been so that you get the most out of this book that you possibly can. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, um, he's just going to kind of start with this kind of summary statement. It's like, why didn't you just give us this at the very beginning, right? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And now, John has been giving us all of these different kind of um, purpose statements throughout the book. We've had three or four already as we've been reading through. But this one just kind of summarizes, A, he's writing to believers. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the first thing that he wants us to be confident in is that we are confident in eternal life. We talked about this last week. When, 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 we're, when we're in our sins, when we're trapped, before we're saved, we are spiritually dead. We are lifeless. There is nothing, no hope, nothing can happen in ourselves that can, can, can do anything to change our current state. But when, but when Jesus died, when Jesus saves us, when he gives us a new heart, he breathes life into us. And, and John is just reminding us, I'm writing these things to believers to remind you that you have this, this eternal, never-ending life that you are looking forward to, this, this hope for, for continued life beyond whatever your present circumstances may be. And so, like I said, John's been kind of giving these little hints all along the way. I'm writing this because of this. I'm writing this because of this. This next section I'm giving you because I want you to understand a couple of different truths. And as I was studying this week, I came across this, this quote from John Piper where he kind of took all of those purpose statements throughout the book and kind of mashed them together in one thought, and I thought this was really helpful. So I'm just going to read that to you. So he kind of summarizes all the why John wrote this to say, I'm writing because you are true believers, but there are deceivers in your midst, and I want you to be rock-solid confident in your present possession of eternal life as regenerate children of God, so that, you may, so that you are not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has that effect, my joy will be complete. So he's saying, I want you to know that you're saved, and if, and if you live like you know that you're saved... That's going to just make me so joyful, so filled with joy. Yes, it is joyful that, that we would understand our eternal life, but, but what, what John's saying is that's going to make me really happy too. 
I'm really going to be excited to see that you are living like you are saved, that you look like a bunch of people who are confident in your salvation, because that's going to affect the way that you as the church go out and accomplish all of the commands and the things that you've already been called to, because you'll be living like children of God. And so he says, I am writing these things to you who believe, right? These things. What are these things? When he says these things, he's kind of looking back at what he's been talking about just previously. These things that he's referring to are the tests that he's been providing throughout the book. Everything that's preceded, um, you know, kind of general, and we kind of had these three themes of like, of like knowing who Jesus is, being obedient to the things that Jesus has called us to, and then loving each other really well. So he's saying, I'm writing these things, I'm writing these commands, I'm reminding you these things, because because as you you live those things out, you're also demonstrating your confidence that Jesus has saved you, and that those commands and things are for you and are possible through you. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks specifically, right? That that we can be confident that these things that we've been called to are going to be true of us because Jesus is making them true in us. So we're told that we can know that we have eternal life. Um, John chapter 10, uh, verse 28 and 29 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what, what John is trying to remind us of is this thing that Jesus has been teaching that, that when we are his children, once we are adopted into his family, that's it. He's got us. He's not going to let us go. There's nothing that you can do to get out. You are, you, where you were trapped in sin, you are now trapped joyfully in Christ, right? And, and there's, nothing that you would, there's no reason you would want to leave, but even if you were afraid that you could say something or do something or, or offend God in such a way that he would be rid of you and kick you out, he's saying that doesn't happen. The people that, that, that are added to my family, those that the Father gives to me, he's not going to let go of. He's got a really tight grip. and he, No one can come and just take you away. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about how in just a minute, how, how Satan can still kind of tempt us and, and, and grab at us and try to get us. But once we're saved, once we're saved, we are in Christ. And there's nothing that any force of evil can do to take us away from him. That is an amazing thought. And that can change our, our outlook, our, our, our motivation as we, as we continue to pursue our, our walk with Christ, right? Because now we don't, we don't, we don't chase after Jesus with fear that we're going to mess something up and then lose everything, we go forward with the confidence that he said, I've saved you, you're mine. I'm not letting you go. And that we're not going to mess up salvation. If, we didn't, if, if our works don't earn our salvation, there's nothing in us, there's no work that we can, we, can, we can commit that would then lose us our salvation at the same time. And, and I think as I've been thinking through that kind of thought, just this confidence in eternal life and and, and, and proceeding. You know, when we picked this book, I was really thinking we were picking it just because of the sections on loving each other well. And we did. That was why we picked the book. So I thought, it'd be really cool for us to just study a book where it teaches us how to love people better. Because I think we could all grow in that. But as I continue studying it, I keep being more and more impacted by this idea of having confidence in eternal life. And, and being confident that I am who Christ says I am and that I can do the things that Christ says I can do. Um, because it's sometimes tempting, especially, you know, um, when you find yourself in a conversation with another believer who maybe goes to a different church or something like that, and, 
and you're from the smaller church that has littler budget, fewer people, you know, and it takes a lot more individual effort to get certain things done or to lead in certain ways or, you know, I mean, even just, even just getting children's ministry going, you know, we're really happy that we have people who love doing that here, but, but even just getting those kinds of things moving in a church this size can be difficult. And it's easy for me, it's a temptation for me to be a little bit less confident when I'm talking to other people who are like, yeah, you should come see our new children's wing. We have a slide, it's awesome. And the fireworks go off whenever the kids come in. It's really neat. You know, I'm not saying that those churches are doing bad things. I'm really not trying to like, to like denounce having, having things and having lots of people and all that. I would love to have more people, that'd be awesome. But, but it's, it's easy for me to see that and then be like, well, what do I have to offer? What does my church have to offer? And I think we have a lot of things to offer because we have people who are following Jesus and can be confident in what Jesus has said. And that's true for me. Like, I have to also learn to be confident in what Jesus says I can do and be confident that, that the church that he's placed me in is going to accomplish really big things because he has put us here for a very specific purpose, to reach specific people with the gospel and I think just this kind of message of be confident in, in where God has you and, and go forward speaking boldly about the things that you know. Because, I mean, all of these things are say, things that John is saying. You know this. There's no, well, I think it works this way. I think we might get to live forever. He's saying, no, no, no. That's one of those things you can say, I know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. I can confidently say. And I think sometimes just to be polite uh, or, or because we think it seems more humble, we'll kind of back off on the way we say things. We won't say, hey, I'm right on this. I, we won't teach, hey, I know this to be a true statement because this is what the Bible says. And I think that John's just trying to encourage us. Be confident in your eternal life. Be confident in who Jesus says you are and move forward with that confidence filling every single action that you take. And I think that's a really, really powerful thought for me that we can be confident in the life that he gives us. And we can, and I think this is, this is important too, we can act like we're alive like we can, so like that can influence anything. Like we can act like we're alive when we're talking to each other at lunch. We can act like we're alive when we're having times of worship. We can act like we're alive when we're sitting and listening to sermons. You know, we can, we can act like we're alive when we're, when we're at our jobs and we're confident in who Jesus is and we're talking to people who maybe don't know or would completely reject the idea of the gospel. You know, like we can... We can confidently live in such a way that says, I've got nothing to lose, I have Jesus. And I think that's a really powerful place for us to get. And I think if we as a church, like, like this church, as CRC, as Christ Reconciled Church, can get to that place, then, then we're going to see God doing amazing things through us because we're relying totally on him and we're confident that he's going to accomplish amazing things because he said he could and he would. So that's the first point. We can be confident in our eternal life. Second point, we are confident in the power of prayer. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. It says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that, anyone should pr- I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is, a sin, there is sin that does not lead to death. 
I'm going to get to those last two verses in just a second. And Caleb, I would just like to say thank you for leaving me this section of verses to teach. I appreciate it very much. Uh, but the first thing that he wants us to remember is that prayer is a powerful thing. I think it's, it's handy that we were just talking about this while we were out there praying right before we started, that, that this week is the first, this next Thursday will be the first Thursday of the month. First Thursday of the month is elder meeting prayer night. So instead of talking through any of the issues that the church may have, any of the decisions we need to make, anything like that, we, we set all that aside and we just spend the whole meeting just praying for the church. People individually, uh, things that we're hoping to see God do in the church, we just spend time praying. And, and if you guys have anything you'd love for us to pray for you for, feel free to let us know. Message us, send us something on the city, uh, shoot us a text, email, whatever you want to do. Let us know. We want to be praying for you guys. But at the same time, we also were looking at our calendar. We're going to finish up reading the book of James tonight during Bible reading. And so next week we're going to have a prayer night too. So I think this is a really timely reminder that we believe that prayer is a powerful thing. And John just reminded us how powerful prayer is. Because he says, when we pray according to the will of God, he will say yes. And I've said this so many times. He will say yes every single time. If you ask something that is God's will, it will be answered positively. Yes. I loved this quote. This is, this is from Daniel Aiken, who wrote one of the commentaries that I've been reading. Um, I'll read it a couple of times, because when you hear it, it can mess with your mind. But I, I love this. He says, God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. Did you get that? I'll read it again. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I think that's, that's so helpful. It seems really weird words. But what he's saying is, like, like we should ask for the things that, that God wants. We should want the things that God wants. And he's going to give us all of those things if we want what he wants. So we have to pray for the will of God, and, and this will always happen. What this tells me is that we need to practice becoming attuned to what God's will is. That's the hard part. It's like, how do I pray for God's will? What is God's will? Um, I can't, and it's like, I can't specifically say, well, God's will is that you're going to go out here, you're going to take, you're going to take a left, and then the first road you're going to come to, God's will, is that you turn left. I can't, I can't tell you that specifically. Like I, don't, I haven't been given that level of clarity to tell you what every single step that you're going to take from here on is going to be. But I can tell you that throughout the book of John, he's been giving us lots of glimpses into what the will of God are. And the will of God, are, the will of God is that we would obey his commands. We would do all of the things that he said that we do. That we would stay away from sin that we would, we would love each other well, and that we would, and that we would rightly understand who Jesus is. We would have good theology about, about who Jesus is and what, what the Bible says about him. And those may seem kind of like cop-out answers, but I think, I think that's really helpful. Like, like we have a whole book that tells us what God's will is. No, it might not tell you when you should quit your job and change to something else. No, it might not tell you exactly how you should lay out your budget, but it's going to give you some really good you know, ideas as to, as to whether you should, you should, I don't know, quit your job and move halfway around the world like some people will, sell everything that you own and give it to the poor, or not. Maybe he wants you to have a big house and a big pool and invite lots of people over to hang out in your pool. I don't know. I don't know what God's calling you to. But, but there are lots of principles 
throughout this book. And that's why it's so important that we have good theology, that we understand what the book says, what, what God has already told us, because those are the easy ones. So what do you say in the will of God? Well, that we should, we should confidently take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to all peoples, all tongues, tribes, nations, right? Like, that's the will of God. Well, am I supposed to like, leave my job to do that? I don't know. That part I can't say. But I can tell you, pray that God would make that happen in your life. And if it means that he says, hey, it's time to sell your house and get moving, be ready to go. And if he says, oh, by the way, all the nations are pretty much represented over at ETSU, you could probably just walk over there and find them, then do that. Like, like be ready to answer whatever the specific part of the call is. And I think you just have to become more attuned to listening to the Holy Spirit and being guided by the Holy Spirit, you know, seeking wise counsel where you can. But, but we're given a lot of answers as to what the will of God is in this book. And if we're, and if we're wondering what our next step should be, I mean, just go in here and find the, find the easy to find stuff. You know, take the gospel, love people, obey his commands, this sort of thing. Um, so, and I loved that my commentaries all agreed that verse 16, um, as an aside, is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to interpret. So here we go. You ready? I'll read it to you one more time. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. That part seems pretty easy, pretty straightforward. There is a sin that leads, there, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that anyone should pray for that. Okay, so what are we, we going to do with this verse? Okay, here's what I think. The first thing I think we can note is that at the beginning of verse 16, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. So he calls him a brother. He's talking specifically about somebody who is saved. He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. That makes sense. The second person, there is a sin that does not lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. I think what he's not saying there stands out in that he is not saying, and if a brother commits a sin that leads to death, don't pray for that. Because, because we've already, we've just established, right? We just established a few verses ago that we have confidence in our eternal life. We aren't, on a, we aren't on a trajectory toward death if we are saved, if we are in Christ. And so by calling the one who is le- committing a sin not leading to death a brother, I think the distinction he's trying to make is, for those who are saved and are falling into sin, pray for them. Pray that they would be restored, brought back out of sin. That's, if you're wanting to know what's the will of God, pray that your brother who's in sin would not be sinning anymore. Like, I think that's a lot of what he's trying to say. Um, so I think, I think the, the harder thing is, so what are you saying we should do about this guy who's committing a sin leading to death and we shouldn't pray about it? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive when, when we've just talked about how powerful prayer is? Well, here's a couple of things that, that I kind of pulled out of this verse that I think it, it, that kind of tie in. First, I think we should expect unbelievers to sin and not try to force morality on them. Does that make sense? So if somebody is unsaved and living in their sin, praying that they would stop sinning is not the prayer that you should be praying for them. Because they are an unbeliever. They are an unbeliever. It makes sense that they would look like an unbeliever and that they would behave like an unbeliever. So just praying that they change their their action isn't really accomplishing anything, they're still headed toward death. Does that make sense? 
as a first thought. So first, we shouldn't expect, we shouldn't expect unbelievers to stop sinning and just try to pray that they would stop. I think we sometimes do that. I think we sometimes become, to, I'm just going to try to make sure you stop doing this one thing that's, that's, that's gross and offensive to God instead of just saying, we need to start with the gospel. And we need to talk about who Jesus is, which is kind of my first, my first, my next point. Our, our, our first hope should be to share the gospel and see them saved before only hoping for morality. Like, don't just try to make somebody look like a Christian. You actually want them to be saved. Being saved is way more important than looking like a Christian. A lot of us can fake looking like a Christian, and we're still on the way, to, and we would still be on the way to death if we don't have our hope and faith in Christ and what he's done and, and recognize that he's the one who's going to save us from our sin. He's the one who's going to get us out of the sin. He's the one who's going to give us a new desire for morality, for living like the standard that he has set before us. Does that make sense? So, so first, we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to change unbelievers to look more moral. We should start with the gospel. And here's the third thing that I pull out from this section. And this is the one that's probably the hardest for some of us. There are some, and by some I mean many, who will not be saved and it's fruitless to pray for them to come out of their sin. I think there's this, this, this kind of sobering reminder that John is giving that not everybody's going to get saved. We aren't universalists in this sense. And, and, to, and to spend time praying that this person would be saved, to pray that this person would stop being in the sin that they're in when they aren't saved and quite frankly, aren't going to be saved, he's saying that's not super helpful to them. <laughs> and, and you could be praying about more important things. And I say there are many who are in that camp because, because we know that Jesus said that there are two paths. There's, there's a wide path that leads to destruction and there's a narrow path that leads to salvation. And I think what he's saying is there are way fewer of us who are actually saved, who are actually going to get in because it's a lot harder a path to get on and to endure through. And there's this wide path that's super easy for people to find and just kind of follow and go after. And so I think it's a, it's, it's a sobering reminder that there are a lot of people out there who will not be saved. Um, and I think that's kind of what John is also reminding us of here. But that's not the big point in these verses. The bigger point is that, there are, that for those who are saved and do fall into sin, our first reaction should be to immediately get down on our knees and beg God to save them from the sin that they are in. We should, we should pray on, behalf, on their behalf that God would bring them back, restore them back. Like, how, how often do we see somebody in sin and say, you got to just stop, and we immediately go to stop, 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 we try to tell them what they should be doing, and we don't even bother to stop and pray, God, help them out of this. Get them away from this sin that's dominating them, right? He's saying our first reaction when our brothers fall into sin should be to pray that God would restore them. Because, and this is our next point, verse 18, we are confident in our victory over sin. We're confident that what what our salvation means is that we are able to overcome sin. We talked a little bit about this over the last couple of weeks. But chapter 5, verse 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. But, but, 
But he who was, was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So, I dread the day that some boy comes to my house asking to take my daughter out on a date. And I dread that because that's the day that I'm going to prison. I just, I've already accepted it. Like, I'm not afraid. I, I have to, we're going to just have to end that right there. Not, I, I, I joke a little bit. I don't joke. I don't joke. I'm totally going to prison. It's not going to be good. I hope, I hope she waits a long, long time till I'm like really crazy and like I forget things and then she can go on dates. But, but I mean, there, there are many things that we are tasked with when we become parents, spouses. Um, one of those things is protecting our kids, right? Like protecting, protecting Ellie from boys who are awful. I can say this because I am one. Protect her from boys, protect her from running out in a car, protect her from, from running her mouth so much that she gets shoved in a locker by one of her friends at school. That was me. I did that. But, like, like that's, that's my role. I want to keep her safe. I want to keep her away from the things that could harm her. I want to keep her away from the things that could, that could pull her into sin, cause her to do something that would be offensive to God. That is part of my role as a parent. And what John is reminding us is that, that we who have been saved are being kept by Jesus. We are being protected from sin, from being pulled back into the life that we have been pulled in, that we were in before by Jesus. Jesus guards us from being taken completely into sin because when we're saved, Jesus protects us from the advances of the devil. And I think this is important. He can tempt us. He can reach for us, but he doesn't get us anymore. We're not his anymore. We are now Christ's. We can be tempted to sin. You, you, might, you might fall into sin for a time, but if you are saved, you are Jesus's, and he is going to pull you back out. He's going to keep you away from that. He's going to guard your soul. I got a couple of verses that just kind of um, speak to that. John 17, 12. This is Jesus. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 1 Peter 1.5 You, who by the, you being the church, who by the power of God are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 24 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. All of these verses are just kind of reinforcing this idea that Jesus has you. Jesus is keeping you. Jesus isn't going to let you go. You might be tempted. You might fall into sin here and there. But if you are saved, if you have a new heart, a new set of desires, a new set of, 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 of wants, a new set of, of motivations, right? You're his and he's going to keep you and he's going to protect you because you're now his child. 
Just like, just like to the parents in here, just like you would protect your kid when you see them running off toward the street and you see the car coming and you know it might hurt, but you're just going to grab them by the back of the collar and you're just going to yank really hard. And it might, sure, it might hurt a little bit when they feel that and it might not be a pleasant experience for everybody, but it's way better to have a little bit of a bruise on your collar because your parent yanked you back than to get plastered by the car that was driving down the road that was never going to see them. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. It might hurt sometimes. It might hurt a lot sometimes to get pulled back out of sin. To have, to have something that's really taken root in your heart, carved out and torn away. It might feel like part of you is dying some of the time. But Jesus is going to do that for you because he loves you. And because he knows that life with him, with the pain of having that taken away, is way better than getting plastered by sin and death and destruction that we were headed for. And so like we've been saying for the last few weeks, I think this is a theme that keeps coming up. Just that, that whatever it is that you have been in, you will have victory over. Like this is a, co- a consistent promise that John is reminding us of. You will see victory in this. If you are in Christ, you will see victory in this. Continue to to surrender to him, rely on him, trust him. Last point. We're confident that we know the truth. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We are able to understand the things of God because of what Christ has done and because it has been revealed to us by Christ. When we are in Christ, all of this stuff that I'm talking about makes sense. All of it makes sense. Luke 10, verse 22 says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows the, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You get that? Like, Jesus and the Father, they know each other. The only other people who really know who they are are the people that he chooses to reveal himself to. So when you're in Christ, all of this makes sense. All of a sudden, it's like you have this understanding of what real truth actually is. You can see how the world works. You can see how everything kind of falls into place. And it's, it's only sensible that God is the one who is sovereign over all of this, made all of this, keeps this whole thing together. Or it would have spun out of control a, whole lot, a long time ago. Jesus is the one who reveals the truth to us. And this includes knowing what is true and what is false. Which, which is why verse 21 is there. When you read, if you were to just read the whole thing, you're like, wait a second. He hasn't talked about idols this whole book. And now he throws this one sentence in. And I've heard people joke before about this verse. Well, you know, John, he was pretty old at this point. He's probably just like spouting off little thoughts as they pop in his head. This is probably just a little aside. Oh, by the way, kids, stay away from idols. 
but I think this makes perfect sense in the context where we find it. That we know who Jesus is. We know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. He is the true God and eternal life. There's all of this truth about who Jesus is. But He reminds us. I mean, He already said it at the beginning of the letter, right? That there, there are false witnesses out there. There are people who are giving a false picture of who Jesus is. They're saying, no, this is what the real truth about Jesus is, right? They say, there's going to be all these temptations that are going to try to draw your focus away from the reality of who Jesus actually is. And he's saying, keep yourself away from those things. There are going to be so many things that tempt you, that try to draw your gaze, that try to take your attention away from the truth, the core of who Jesus is, the truth of the gospel. They're going to try to make you question whether all of these things that he's been presenting in this whole book have been have been exactly right or whether or not we can kind of soften our stance on a few of them so that people can be more comfortable. And he's saying, you're going to be tempted by all of these things, but don't go for it. Stay away from it. There is truth. You know truth. You've been given truth by Jesus, and we shouldn't become distracted by anything, even good things, that we can begin to love more than Jesus. And I think this is like a perfect way to kind of wrap up the whole book and kind of what I've been trying to say. We should be so confident that Jesus is all that we need and all that we will ever need and that he ultimately is what will satisfy every desire of our heart. We should be so confident in those things that, that we don't need anything else. Any of these things that could take our attention away, any of those things that you're like, oh, that would be nice, or I want that, or, or man, it'd be fun to get to do this, or to have this, or to be in this kind of a relationship, or to have this kind of job, or to have this degree, or to have this size church, or to have this many nice things. We don't need those things. When we understand who Jesus is and we appreciate what salvation means for us and that we, we know what our eternal life is, we know what victory over sin looks like, we know, we know what we can accomplish just through the power of prayer. When we know these things, everything else that can distract us from those things begins to pale in comparison. I don't need that anymore. I don't want that. I have no desire for it anymore. And when, and when difficult times arise or when something comes up or when you find yourself trapped in a sin, you, you have confidence that he's going to get you out of that and that, that he's the only solution for that. You don't, you don't, you don't retreat into, into solidarity thinking, I have to fix this before I can be around the church again. No, no, no. No, you, you confidently step back into community saying, community is what I need. This group of people, people who will remind me who Jesus is, that's, that's what I need. I don't need to shy away. I don't need to run. When, when, it's, time, when it's time for worship, we don't, we don't hide and think, man, I'm going to really embarrass myself if I, if I raise my hands or close my eyes or, or whatever it might be. But we have confidence in who Jesus is and, and the pride of what, what people are thinking is kind of set aside. The idol, of, the idol of what people are going to assume about us or think about who we are. We can set that idol aside when it's, when, it's time to, when it's time to hear teaching or we're in our community groups and, and maybe our community group leader is, is explaining something that they, that they found in the passage or, or when, it, when you're being presented with some truth from Scripture. 
We don't have this, this kind of hubris that builds up that says, maybe I know this better, but we're ready to stop and humbly take whatever instruction or, or whatever it might be because, because we know we don't have to look like we're the smartest person in the room or that we have the best, the most experience or whatever it might be. We don't, we don't have that idol in our lives. We're able to set that aside and say, no, I just need Jesus. I just need the truth that he gives to me, the truth that he reveals to me. The truth that, that I can only have, the only, only I, that I can only understand because he has grafted me into his family, made me a part of who he is. That's the kind of confidence that I want us as a church to have in our salvation and who we are because of what Jesus has made us to be. Let's pray.